0: I'm not blaming anybody. I knew where they were, and I knew what they could and could not do. They just never realized it because they figure, surely to God, we can move one person. Surely we can badger and beat one person up. Surely we can get enough protesters to make that person uncomfortable enough. They'll just say, okay, I'll vote for anything, just quit. Well, guess what? I'm from West Virginia. I'm not from where they're from, and they can just beat the living crap out of
1: people and think they'll be submissive,
0: period. That was Senator Joe Manchin on a West Virginia radio show Monday pushing back at the furious attacks on him from the White House and his fellow Democrats over his refusal to support President Biden's Build Back Better bill. Manchin's announcement that he, quote, just can't get there to back the bill was a crushing blow to the Biden administration and appeared to stun top officials and Democratic leaders who had assumed wrongly that he would come around on what has been the president's top legislative priority. One that, in their view, would, among other things, sharply reduce child poverty, help working parents by dramatically expanding child care, and take major steps to address climate change. And perhaps just as significant, the failure to pass Build Back Better undermines Democratic arguments that they and Biden can actually get things done, thereby seriously hurting the party's chances of retaining control of Congress in next fall's midterms. One who is not deterred, however, is former Democratic Congressman Max Rose. An Afghan war vet, Rose previously represented a district in New York that contains all of conservative Staten Island and parts of Brooklyn until he was knocked off by a Republican Trump supporter, Nicole Malliotakis, last year. But Rose is running again. We'll ask him why, and why he thinks and can brook what many fear will be a red tide next November on this episode of Skullduggery.
2: I do solemnly
0: swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. So help me God. So help
1: me God. So help me God. So help me God.
0: I'm Michael Isikoff,
1: Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Kleidman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
3: And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So, Kleiman,
0: I know you warned me not to gloat, but I do have to remind our loyal listeners that for months now, you have been suggesting that the all the back and forth on uh, Build Back Better and the problems the Democrats were having was sort of standard legislative sausage-making and it would all turn out fine in the end. You know, my argument was no, there seemed to be much deeper divisions here and that all one had to do is listen to what Manchin had been saying for months every time he'd get asked, you know, by Manu Raju on CNN, he would talk about his concerns about inflation. He would talk about how it cost too much that it wasn't all paid for. He would talk about all his many reservations on uh, the bill. And I think that's all one had to know to realize this thing was in serious trouble in a 50-50 Senate. And so, um... Okay. Despite your warnings, I do have to say. Just stop there. Just I stop told there. you so.
1: Stop <laughs> there. I was going to say. I will eat. Uh, here's the deal. I will okay. eat crow if you don't gloat.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, I may have already. Uh, yeah. You know, cats that out of deal. the bag. <laughs>
1: right. Look. I mean. I think what happened here. It was a kind of a. I guess a kind of a group think on the part of you know Democrats, which then you know kind of became sort of infectious that. It was the, the sense that, you know, this this thing had this momentum that, yes, of course, it was going to happen. It was just going to take time. But, you know, in that clip that you played at the in the intro, I think the most significant thing that uh, Manchin said was, I'm from West Virginia. I'm not from where they're from. And the fact of the matter is Biden lost West Virginia by 39 points. You know, it may be the most conservative state in the country. And so the idea that that anyone, including myself, thought that the kind of momentum and, you know, some, like, outside pressure from... Remember the uh, the protesters who showed up on their boats outside of uh, yeah. the Almost Heaven, yeah, his boathouse on trick. the sure. That yeah. seemed so ridiculous in, in retrospect. Yeah. Uh, it seemed kind of ridiculous at the time, I have to say. But I guess the question that... Look, there are two questions uh, that come to mind. One is, you know, we talk a lot about who's up and who's down and who's winning and who's losing. But, you know, to go from a bill that would have been, I don't know, whatever it was going to end up being $1.8 trillion of strengthening, you know, the welfare state in, in this country to nothing uh, is almost unimaginable for people out there. I think it would be a pretty devastating thing politically, but also is going to end up hurting a lot of people. So the question is, how can the Democrats pick up the pieces to at least do something here, for a lot of people uh, out in in the country who are hurting, not you know, and of course uh, the the
3: climate I've got an answer for that, but well. Victoria,
0: I know you want to weigh in. So well, you I was going to say
3: there, there are two things. One of the most interesting things that's happening with uh, Joe Manchin right now is whether or not the Democrats are walking into let's call it the Jeffords trap, which is exactly what happened almost 20 years ago when the dip, when the Senate was also split 50 50 and one. Senator who kind of didn't, wasn't totally in sync with his party, Jim Jeffords from uh, Vermont, was so beaten up and pressured by his party that he switched parties. And all of a sudden, the Senate went from being 50 50 and under the control of the Republicans to being under the control of the Democrats. A lot of people are worried right now that that might be exactly what's about to happen with Joe Manchin, that he's so fed up with the amount of pressure and the pushback that he's gotten from the Democrats that he's ready potentially to walk away from them. So that's one of those calculations that's going on, even as Senator Schumer is considering a very aggressive move in January to bring up bits and pieces of the Build Back Better bill and to potentially force Manchin to take what they regard as bad votes.
0: Well, on that point, Victoria, you know, did the White House statement sort of blasting Manchin after this, you know, talking about how he uh, misled the White House and misrepresented uh, his position to the president himself, you know, does that help if you're concerned about Manchin bolting the Democratic Party? It would seem to me that was You know, as soon as I read it, I said, like, God, what what does this accomplish other than, you know.
1: What it accomplished, and I'm not sure it was worth it, particularly if he ends up bolting from the Democratic Party, which is not at all a foregone conclusion. I mean, most people seem to think that it's more likely that if he did anything, he would declare himself an independent but caucus with the Democrats. What it uh, I think was probably meant to achieve was to send a signal to the progressives in the party who are furious that this played out the way it did, especially because they have thought that the White House was giving up the leverage they had by, get, by passing the hard infrastructure bill, that they needed to give some sort of a sop to the progressives. Otherwise, their fury would have yeah, just Yeah, but the, but the Democrats
0: me. are going to support whatever they want to get passed here, and Manchin they is need not. If, so to salvage Manchin, anything, you don't
1: need the progressives. They, but they weren't going to get Manchin at that point.
3: And also never underestimate the uh, extraordinary affection Democrats have for a circular firing squad. <laughs> well, we have certainly see that. I mean, to me, my critique on this is
0: like, you know, they all got drunk on their talking points and they live in their bubble. I mean, Ron Klain lives on Twitter and goes on MSNBC, Lawrence O'Donnell at night. And, you know, they all stroke each other and they think that's the world. That's political reality. What they're seeing on MSNBC and what they read on Twitter And, you know, the fact is, it's not. And, you know, they did not, especially as the inflation concerns mounted. And, you know, they push back and say, oh, it's all paid for. It's not going to affect inflation. Come on. They played games with that. The idea that the child tax credit, they only funded it for, what, one year, I mean, that was pure nonsense. I mean, nobody, the Democrats were not going to vote to take away child tax credit once it was enacted, so you had to, you know, plan it out and budget for it for the full length of the bill, 10 years. That would have busted the cost of the bill, and they couldn't deal with that, so they played
3: this budgetary gimmick game. I don't know, Mike. I don't I don't actually buy that because why, you, why don't you buy that? Uh, well, on the, on the one hand, you're correct that the child tax credit actually would have expired within a year. Yeah. And and then if Manchin is so concerned about the ongoing cost a year from now, he could have voted against renewing it. So he he had the control one way or another in terms of the timing of it. And what would have been
0: the Democratic response and the White House response, uh, you know, when child tax credits was about to expire and people were going to lose a lifeline, particularly the lowest income people who were getting, you know, these uh, tax credits, these refundable tax credits that they didn't even pay the taxes for, that they were going to get the money and they were going to get cut off after having it for two years. At least in in the the years that Biden,
1: at least in the years that Biden, was in office, I think they would have come under enormous pressure to pay for the
0: of extensions, course
1: they would. right. Of so course they would have they paid would. for it. So then it would yeah.
0: have been okay. Yeah. At least but could have voted they... against it a year from
3: now. You know?
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> no.
3: It's not automatic, Mike. It genuinely isn't automatic. And so you shouldn't price it as, as, as if it's automatic. Right.
0: I, I, I think that a reasonable cost of the bill would have been projecting it over a 10 year period, because the likelihood is once you created this program, there was going to be an enormous constituency and political pressure. I mean, Mike, continue. you can say
3: that about absolutely anything that Congress ever passes, in which case that there always ought to be a 10 year cost estimate for anything or a perpetual cost estimate. I don't know. I just think that, you know. know, the truth is, as written, it really Mm -hmm. was a one-year thing. Yeah. It really could be killed. It likely will be killed if the Republicans take control of Congress next year, either the House or the Senate. So, you know. Well, if
0: you're counting on that, okay. But look, in in answer to the question of where the Democrats go from here, I think of, um, remember when McCain voted down with the big thumbs down, the uh, ending uh, Obamacare? And, you know, what were the two words that he used at the time, which everybody celebrated? Regular Regular order. order. Let's (laughs) have regular order. Let's have committee hearings on these bills. Let's have some kind of process where interest groups get to weigh in and legislative compromise gets made, and then you get a bill that more than 50 senators could support. But that was not a route that the Democrats wanted to go. They made a fatal mistake in not doing so. And now they're going to end up having to do so anyway. We'll see whether that can get, you know, I still think it's possible you could get a you know, Republican or two, like Murkowski or possibly a Collins for some of these provisions, but individually, not as part of a giant package. And, you know, that's about the best uh, the D's can um, uh, hope for at this point, I think.
1: Well, look, you may need more than a Murkowski or a Collins if individually these, you can't use uh, reconciliation. I know they have another you know, have another crack at it and you it, just yeah. pick,
0: you know, pick what you want, pick what you what is most important and do that. And, you know, and, and also then you could sell this, you know, you could sell a pure child tax credit bill. You could possibly sell a pure climate change. It's bill. true. You that could, That's but, you, a good you, you, point, yeah.
1: because I got to say, I mean, the, or
3: a pure prescription drug. You know, control. every yeah, time sure.
1: we every time we. Uh, would do something on bill back better on this show, or you always have to sort of stop and say, okay, what is, what are all the different components in this bill? I got to remember uh, this part and that part, and the climate piece of it, and you know, and that just makes it in terms of messaging much harder, uh, and it's harder for people to kind of retain all that information in their heads. It's cleaner to do separate bills if you can do it.
0: Well, I, you know. The bottom line, in my view, is the White House got enamored and Biden got enamored with the idea that he was going to be FDR and LBJ and transformative. And, you know, that's great. I'm going to change the country. Yeah.
1: What was he reading during the
0: transition? John Meacham, probably. John? No, the other
1: John from Newsweek, John Alter. Okay. His book on FDR is Hundred Days. I think it was it called The Defining Moment. Was that it? Yeah. Right.
3: That's so, funny because FDR's 100 days were kind of a hot mess. But, you know. in uh...
0: <laughs> But the New Deal got launched and it, uh, you know, it stayed with us for decades and is with us still today. Right now, Biden has nothing like that to point to except some roads and bridges. But in any case, we've got a uh, interesting guest to talk all about this. Somebody who's been on Skullduggery before, the former Congressman Max Rose, uh, who is running again. So let's get to it we are now joined by former democratic congressman max rose max welcome back to skullduggery
2: hey it's good to see you my friend
0: okay so let's recall when we last saw each other at the uh, Sufan Security Conference in Doha, and we were discussing the fate of Build Back Better, and we made a bet. You bet that it was going to pass. This was in early November. I bet that it would not. To your credit, you emailed me on Saturday, even before Manchin had made his uh, announcement that there's no way he can get there, that I had won. Tell us. Why you were wrong and I was right.
2: What a question. You know, when I was.
0: <laughs> it's the question I like to ask most of our guests, right?
2: When I was thinking about this interview, I said, you know, that was a private bet I made with Issa Coffee. He, he, is he going to bring it up? Is he not? <laughs> I mean, I'm looking forward to buying him a steak dinner. We'll sit yeah, down a steak dinner. That's you know, right. We can just be two friends. Yeah. I, and that, that took me about 30 seconds before <laughs> I realized guaranteed he brings it up. First thing, front and center. Not only get the steak dinner out of this, but also publicly publicly shame me. Look, play, plain and simple, I was focused on the legislation. You know, and I when you look at what is needed in this country, and I, I think about this from the perspective of what would a business person want if they were running, you know, America Corp, right? and what you would want is you would want a few things right you would want universal pre-k universal affordable child care so that you could ensure as many people are entering the workplace as possible people are not disincentivized from having children the things that people care about desperately during those early years of a of a family are affordable you would want to make sure that we have a resilient future in regards to climate change, you would want to make sure that we were curbing back the cost of pharmaceutical drugs, all very obvious. And it, it turns out in the end that that was not good enough for Joe Manchin. And this, this did come down to him, to which you know I would respond very civilly that if this was a political calculus that he was making, you know I, I've taken some really hard votes in my life. I've done some. I've taken some hard stands in, in my two years in, in Congress, and some say that I lost my seat because of it. Some say I certainly have the scars from those incidents. This doesn't seem hard. It doesn't seem hard. I don't. Uh, I think that it would it would have a positive impact on inflation, not the opposite. So, you definitely were right. I was right about my values, but uh, you were right in terms of prognostication you know, among
0: the many critiques of this is that it was too much all in the same bill. It muddied the water. It focused people on the overall cost instead of the particulars that were in the bill. And, you know, that's usually presented as a messaging issue. The Democrats should have been better about focused on what was contained in the bill. But I think the counterargument to that is... If you just had a child tax credit bill, you could focus all the attention on the benefits that would bring. If you just had a climate change bill, you could focus all the attention on that. Why did it have to be all shoved into one big giant grab bag that just confused most people about what was in it anyway and led everybody to think about, oh my God, look at the cost of this, especially during a time of, you know, mounting inflation?
2: Oh, well, first of all, it, it, it was definitively a mistake to, you know, they, they don't call the National Defense Authorization Act an $8 billion bill. I mean, an $8 trillion bill over the course of 10 years. No, it's an $800 billion annual uh, effort. So it was definitely, I think, the part of the messaging in and around this, rather than looking at the annual cost, the significant investments associated with it, looking at something over the course of 10 years, there's something to be said there. You're certainly hit, uh, hit on something when it comes to the complexities in and around everything was, that was in there. You know, I still believe that the central message of making things more affordable that, pe- that working families desperately need and desperately care about, protecting the future for our families, as well as putting money back in people's pockets. I mean, this was an incredible tax cut for millions upon millions of hardworking Americans you can't juxtapose that with a tax cut for the wealthiest amongst us, the largest corporations, that was the Trump tax scam. You know, that it took them a while to get to that messaging. But I'm not sure if that would have shifted Manchin or not. But now definitely, you, look, you have to go back to the drawing board because the American people, they're still working under very arduous circumstances. And, and I'm a believer in government stepping up and doing the right thing. Child tax credit is a powerful thing. It's a powerful, powerful tool to put money in people's pockets during a really arduous time. And it's quite simple. Maybe that's the route. I don't want us to give up on pre-K and child care, though. I don't say that just because I'm putting a kid through childcare right now, but uh, or my wife and I are, but because it will have an incredible economic impact on the future of the country. These are investments. This is not socialism. This is... Uh, Investing in the American dream. It's investing in our most powerful, potent resource, which is our young people. And I'd love to see us start to frame it in that manner.
1: Part of the answer to Mike's question, why you couldn't break it up into parts, is because, you know, it's a 50 50 Senate, and the Democrats were relying on reconciliation, and they only get so many bites of the apple. So the idea that they'd be able to pass pre K, climate change, you know, family, you know, all these different things. I think that would have just been very hard, if not impossible to do. But I guess the it, it leads to the question, did they try to, was it hubris? I mean, the idea that in a 50-50 Senate with, you know, no Republicans supporting anything, any of this at all, that they could actually get something this big
2: through. It wasn't hubris to pass the American Rescue Plan. So that was done successfully. Now, what is shocking is the fact that no one is talking about it right now to include the Democratic Party. Can you imagine right now what things would look like with the rise of Omicron if we hadn't passed that $1.9 trillion rescue of the economy that put money in people's pockets, invested in testing, invested in vaccine distribution, and so many other things? We don't often think about that counterfactual, and I think that the Democratic Party, with its really unbelievable commitment and dedication to trying to do more for the American people does need to learn how to take a pause and talk about things that we just accomplished. I I mean, I would ask you, how often do you see Democrats talking about that bill? That was an incredibly monumental, significant bill. How often do you see the Democrats talking about an unprecedented vaccination campaign that was bolder and more expansive and more inclusive than any vaccination effort done in the history of the world. Now you think about what what would things look like without that? Again, a really, really dire circumstances, not talking about it either. So we've got to exist within the realm of the possible. We have to continue to push to do more, but damn it, let's take a pause as well and make sure that the American people are aware of what we've already accomplished. And so much of this, look, every time that one of these folks are going on TV or this or that, they're, get, they're getting talking points. So you got the Democratic Policy Committee, you've got the DNC, you got the DCCC, more acronyms that we all can deal with. It is no coincidence that we are seeing this type of institutional failure that no one is talking about these very significant wins. And I, that, that in and of itself has got to get fixed. Now, you're right. There's three more reconciliation bills which is just inane that we're thinking about legislating in this manner. But that, that's still a lot of room to get some really incredible things done that are simple, that are all about doing two things, putting money in people's pockets and protecting future generations. I'm not, I'm not giving up hope just because Joe Manchin wants to drop this surprise before he goes off to holiday in, in West Virginia.
3: So one thing that Joe Manchin says was uh, driving or motivating his decision over the weekend. And let's put a pin in that because there are a lot of things that could have been driving the decision. But at least one thing that he says is uh, rising inflation. I'm curious, kind of two questions. The first is, from your perspective, how credible is that as the basis for concerns about passing this bill? And second, how potent an issue is it amongst voters. How are you going to talk to people and persuade them to vote for you if they're afraid that this bill is going to drive inflation and effectively take money out of their pockets?
2: Let's take a step back and look at look at inflation, because certainly to your first question, do the polls say that there's a connection? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. That's irrefutable. You you look at a a recent poll out of West Virginia. I think it was something like over 75 percent of people thought that there was there was some type of connection here. And the Republicans have done quite a lot of messaging in and around that. If you look at what the actual sources of inflation are right now, I think it boils down to the fact that a lot of consumption, we put money in people's pockets, rightfully so, during incredibly dire circumstances. At the same time, consumption, because of the pandemic, that was not going away, was shifting away from services towards merchandise, manufactured goods, so on and so forth. The global system wasn't prepared for that, produces supply chain constraints, which then subsequently produces inflationary pressures. Longer those inflationary pressures stay around, the more likely it's gonna move from transitory to something that is far more permanent. Social security goes up, so on and so forth. Democrats in the face of that can't then scoff at people's pain with some type of elitist twins disdain, saying something is transitory, it's gonna be okay, move on, ignore it. Life after all is transitory as well, it's ridiculous. Now, in the face of that though, I don't think that it is legitimate to say that non-deficit spending long-term over the course of 10 years that lowers the costs of things that really do matter to people, is paid for, is 20% of a annual military budget, that that is actually inflationary inducing. That, that, that to me does not make economic sense, and I'd love to debate someone who thinks it does, but Politics takes over. And I think that at at moments like this, it does require fortitude. It does require remembering why you're in office. And you're in office not to win re-election. You're in office to do the right thing. And and this is what I don't understand about these folks, right? Who who are reading the polls and making decisions concurrently. Life after, if you lose, life is not that bad. It ain't that (laughs) bad. You get to... Lose bets to Isakoff man, and <laughs> embarrass you. So I, I
0: if it's not that yeah. bad, why are you running again?
2: Well, because it's important. Because it's important. I don't need it, but it's important. And you know, people often forget amidst all of the Twitter banter, back and forth, there's, there's ridiculous headlines that we see on MSNBC, Fox, and CNN that if you care about service and if you care about actually impacting people's lives and trying to help this country fulfill its promise, there's nothing more poignant and more powerful and more significant than what one can do in elected office. Um, That what one can do by playing a part in government. Now, it doesn't have to just be in elected office. I recently served as the senior advisor to the secretary of defense and got to take part in us building out this unprecedented vaccination campaign. That was an incredible, incredible privilege. But when I look at what is happening here, whether it's with inflation, whether it's a continued pandemic that won't go away, whether it's with this ridiculous type of politics where you see the Republican party voting, not voting to certify an election even after an insurrection that was inspired by that very big lie that still votes to shut down the government just because they don't want the president to get a win, I believe that this central mantra of being willing to do the right thing, no matter the cost. And my record that underlies that is really, is a really important thing to bring to public service. You know, we move around so much from issue to issue to issue. It is so freaking ridiculous that they still will not acknowledge that this election was real. It is so ridiculous that someone could, that groups could storm the Capitol and they would not, certify an actual or condone or approval of an actual investigation to that. How crazy would it be if I was sitting here with you all saying, man, I didn't lose my election. That was a total fraud. That was ridiculous. I don't believe in it. When did this become okay in this country?
1: So let me ask you, let me pick up on that, because I think you've said that you're part of the reason you're running is because you believe that our best days are not behind us, but are ahead of us that you want to take on these issues that you just spoke about, that go to the core of our values, our system of government, democracy. Give us your best case as to why that shouldn't be just heard as a, a campaign slogan, but that you really, really believe that, and how you think people who enter public service can actually fulfill those promises. I mean, you know, 70% of Republicans today believe the election was stolen. The Republican Party is controlled by Donald Trump. What is the optimistic case here for America turning things around and going in the right direction?
2: You know, the optimistic case is all around us, isn't it? You know, you just sometimes have to look outside of our political leadership. The optimistic case is to be found in our essential workers who for two years now have risked their lives each and every day, while some of us have the luxury of not having to wait outside of our homes. I saw the optimistic case for America when I you know, led a, a group of you know, 20, 25 young men and women in Afghanistan in a rural area uh, who came from all over the, the country and the world, some of whom weren't even citizens yet, and put all their differences aside to risk their lives each and every day for folks that they'd never even met. I get optimistic thinking about when I sat in the Pentagon on my fifth day and Lloyd Austin walks in on his first day and says something that takes the lives of a half a million Americans, we need to do something about it. And the Department of Defense puts into place an unprecedented plan for over 10,000 service members to stand up vaccination sites around the nation, something that never happened before. That gets me optimistic and it should get you optimistic as well. But Certainly what we see right now are challenges that I think are driven by our politics, driven by the perverse incentives that our politics are riddled with, where you're rewarded for obstructionism, where you're rewarded for divisiveness, where you are rewarded for not actually having consistent beliefs, but preventing the other side from getting wins, even though it does significant harm to the country. It's that brand of politics that I think is actually perfectly evinced by many members of the Republican Party in Washington DC that's what I want to wage war on that's that that's what I think we as a society need to move on move on from but you know as, as our incoming New York City mayor Eric Adams says you know there, there's still no German dream there's no Japanese dream there's no French dream there's no Argentinian dream there's an American dream though and that that is that is still something I, I very much believe in, but I don't think it's something that happens by osmosis, it's something we need to invest in. And, and that's why I cared so deeply about this legislation we were speaking about earlier.
3: I want to circle back to the inflation question, if I can, because it's, it's pretty clear that that's an issue that's being set up as a, a pretty major uh, flashpoint for the upcoming election. It's likely that the Fed will have raised interest rates by the time the November 2022 election goes around, so many of your constituents will be who have adjustable mortgages will be seeing increased mortgage payments. They'll be seeing increased student loan payments. They will probably have been coming off a summer of uh, high gas prices. What are you going to tell them? Is the Democrats' answer to the inflation problem?
2: Absolutely. You know, the first is is that whenever we're talking about big bold legislation that re- results in Sound investments we do need to really consider pay force. You saw that in the bipartisan infrastructure package. By the way, why is it that the infrastructure package they're claiming didn't have anything to do with inflation, but Build Back Better did? No one, no one can answer that other than other than politics. So that's the first thing. the The second thing is beating back this this pandemic, getting folks vaccinated, making sure that we are not overreacting as well. So we can start to shift some of this economic activity back towards services, making sure that we are using all the tools at our disposal to ease these backlogs at the ports to include, may I add, considering deploying members of the National Guard to offload merchandise, something I wish had happened in the run-up to Christmas. It didn't. But let me, if you wouldn't mind, if I could also ask you a question in response to, why is it that you know, I'm coming to you with these solutions, these suggestions, one that I believe that the Democratic Party is and should be pushing significantly, why is it the Republican Party has not come out with their own set of solutions to inflation? I'll tell you why it is. And please tell me if you think I'm wrong. The members, the leadership of the Republican Party, the elected official, many of the elected officials of the Republican Party, not all of them, are are loving inflation behind closed doors. They are cheering it on. They want it to keep on going up. They want COVID to stay here because they are rooting against America because they know that that improves their electoral prospects. That's the sorry state of our politics today. So if you actually want something to get fixed, then turn to the Democratic Party. If you want something to continue until the election, I believe that that's where the Republican Party is right now. You know, but
1: honestly, okay. let me just—don't Democrats do the same thing when a Republican president is in office and unemployment numbers go up? Don't That's they cheer? Right. Don't they cheer behind oh, closed pisses,
2: doors? What pisses me off so much about this, you know, I go back to the COVID bill at the end of the last administration, right? And I don't know if you all remember this. You too you know, Isikoff's too busy shit talking to me, but <laughs> the, there was this COVID bill where there there was a more buy- to come, bill. by the way. It was a bipartisan compromise that had been negotiated, bicameral, bipartisan, Treasury Secretary was on board. It was something in and around just over $1 trillion, about three weeks, maybe a little more before the election. The Democrats come out with a $2 trillion bill for the House floor. No, we're not going to put the bipartisan one on the House floor. We're going to put the $2 trillion one on the House floor. Now, if I thought there was any potential for that $2 trillion one to, to actually pass, I would have voted for it. We all knew that it wasn't going to pass. Everybody knew it wasn't going to pass because you didn't want to give Donald Trump a win. You didn't want to give the Republicans a win. So let's make the American people suffer for four months. It's what's wrong with our politics right then and there. So you're damn right that Democrats have done this in the past. It doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make it ethical. And I don't think that our politics was necessarily always like this. You know, when when Isakov was, you know, a, a nebbish young man and he was talking <laughs> about impe- impeachment, you know, you, they were still getting stuff done. And this notion of being able to separate political warfare from a concern for the American people, I think, is something that we have desperately lost in our politics and something that we that we absolutely have to regain. But just to finish my thoughts on inflation, you know, we, we also shouldn't be scoffing at rising gas prices, when people have to commute, when people, when gas prices figure into someone's daily work, we have to come out with bold solutions that are, yes, short term minded, while also keeping in mind our long term goals of transitioning to a carbon neutral economy. We should be actively talking about pushing OPEC to produce more and distribute more. We should be actively talking about dipping into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That should not be something that the Democratic Party is allergic to talking about.
0: For the record, Izakoff has consistently denied the Neveshi allegation. So I just want that clear. Yeah,
2: <laughs> that that program. I mean, uh,
0: it, my lawyers are reviewing it. you you mentioned Afghanistan before you're an Afghan war vet. And, you know, if you look at the polls, Biden's numbers started to sink when everybody saw the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. Which, by the way, you know, in the larger context of democracy versus authoritarianism around the world, was a major advance for the forces of authoritarianism. In fact, the most significant advance we'd seen in many, many years as a result of Biden's withdrawal. Um, What was your reaction to the president's decision and the way the withdrawal took place?
2: So, first of all, I, I have the scars from that conflict literally and figuratively. I watched people in Afghanistan, you know, guys, I was entrusted with leading get hurt. And that's not something I'm ever going to forget, or it's not something I'm ever, the pain associated with that is something I'm never going to be able to kick. And so watching those videos and watching our withdrawal was painful. Uh, And do I think that there were things that absolutely should have been done better uh, in terms of the execution of withdrawal, 100%. I don't think anyone to include the president of the United States and his, and his cabinet disagrees with that. But what's disappointing amidst this discussion is somehow that becomes the basis of an analysis of whether or not it was the right thing to leave in the first place. And there, I remain absolutely committed as I was in Congress when Donald Trump said that he wanted to get out, that this was the right thing to do to get out of Afghanistan, irrespective of who was in office. There are some really significant questions though that we need to pull out of of what just happened. One, why was our intelligence so God awful as it pertained to how long the Afghan National Army and the, the Ghani government could stay in power? For those of us on the ground who saw it, like the Taliban took over the area I was in in Afghanistan five, six years ago. This wasn't as much of a, a surprise. And I think we really have to question why was our why is our intelligence system still bloated, bureaucratic and not getting things like this correct.
0: But, you know, you, you don't think the uh, White House kind of obscured the intelligence there and minimized the warnings that from central command and military commanders on the ground that uh, this was the likely result.
2: I don't think that there was definitive intelligence pointing to this. I do think that there were some messages saying that this that this was something that was a likelihood, was a possibility, so on and so forth. But I don't think that the intelligence community was, by any sense of the word, unanimous, forthright, definitive on this point, I, I, I truly don't. Because
0: there's a track record of the intelligence community trying to massage the intelligence to give the White House what it wants to hear. Well, I, that's, I know, that's a consistent theme. That, I, I, don't,
2: I don't know if it's that nefarious, but I do think that what we have a problem in our intelligence agencies, and it's probably something that I think that it has to require legislation to actually address, is when you have this hodgepodge of 17, 18 different agencies that loosely answers up to the DIA that it, it doesn't actually allow for something that's crystallized, forthright and poignant. Now, when you think about the ways in which, where do we go from here? I think that there, there's a few things, one that we, we really need to be cognizant of. Two, you know, the, the first is, is that there's an incredible famine going on right now in Afghanistan, incredible uh, human tragedy that it is america's responsibility as the leader of the free world to start to do something about. The second is is I've not lost hope and I think that you know if we're conducting counterterrorism efforts around the world something that we should continue doing may I add it we should we should still have systems in place operations in place to conduct those counterterrorism operations in afghanistan. That I think is completely and utterly within the realm of possibility. But this notion, you know, you saw really three different encampments of people. One, you saw folks like myself that are saying, look, I thought this was the right thing to do under Donald Trump. It's the right thing to do now. And let, let's consider where do we go from here? Two, you had folks who I think were acting like absolute frauds who said, oh, I was cheering on Donald Trump to do this. But when Joe Biden did it, he just did it the, the wrong way. Third, you had this resurgence of this foreign policy blob. That was largely H.R. McMaster was leading the, the, you know, this and a few others that were saying, no, we should have stayed there forever. This should have been South Korea. This should have been Japan. This should have been Germany. And there, that that's an absolute fallacy. There's no way in which that w- would have been possible. It would have resulted in incredible loss of human life, blood, and may I add, treasure. But nonetheless, they continue to, to ride that. Theoretical notion that us staying there, particularly if it meant that we would have had to break Donald Trump's peace accord that he signed, not Joe Biden, that he signed, I think was was totally ridiculous and absurd. And what, what what I will not do, what I refuse to do, any loss of human life of men and women in combat is an absolute tragedy. This notion of politicizing the loss of these 13, men and women, I think is totally and utterly wrong. Over 60 service members died in Afghanistan under Donald Trump. It would be wrong to politicize their death too. You know, it, it's, But it, it doesn't seem that politics just, politics in this day and age, nothing is untouchable. You can go after anything. Congressman, you
1: served one term, uh, you went in in 2018, and now you're running for reelection. So you've been out for a year, you will have been out if you win, uh, you will have been out obviously for two years. In this time that you've been out, I assume you've thought about that term that you served, what you're proud of, um, that's part of your uh, your election campaign. But is there anything that, that you would do differently, excluding winning reelection? <laughs> have you thought about what kind of a congressman you would like to be this time around if you win, as opposed to the first
2: time around? Yeah. I thought I played in the gutter too much. The negative campaigning, some people say it's effective, some people don't. Statistics point to it being effective, whatever it might be. But I think that our elected officials often forget, and I did too, is that when you put something out there, whether it's TV, whether it's digital, it's everybody, you know, our families see it, our communities see it. And if everything is just about how do you win 51% of the vote, and you don't, it's wrong. Now, my son is just under two. My wife and I are in the process of adopting a second child. I want to run a campaign that my family and my children can be proud of when they look back on it. So I, I can only be responsible for my own actions. I can't control what the other side is going to do. And I used to kind of scoff at this idea that you—you you know, they go low, we go high, or this or that. But our politics cannot be observed and viewed just in a silo. This country, man, where folks stormed the Capitol out of a disdain for another political party, that did not even happen in the Civil War. So much of our politics is devolving into violence and vitriol. And I'd rather lose, again, than play any part contributing to that. What are you
1: going to do if uh, your opponent, who's the sitting... Member of Congress from from this district, Nicole uh, Maliotakis, goes hard negative on you.
2: You know, you look at what she did last time. You know, taking my participation in a nonviolent effort on the part of young people of color in my district to voice their pains and concerns about police brutality and to do it in a really coordinated, collaborative manner. She she and her colleagues ran commercials positioning those individuals as thugs and rioters and violent animals. Not, you know, to to a certain extent, that was, you know, I stepped into the arena, but the fact that she drug all of them into it and set us back, our community back so many years in the process when we were on the cusp and the precipice of doing something really important and really significant. To me, that's the height of evil that one shouldn't just sit back and allow to happen. But there's a difference between being forthright and honest and clear and powerfully rejecting what someone is trying to say about not just you, but a community you represent and stooping to someone's level. And that's that's just a line that I'm not gonna cross. I'm not willing to cross and I'm not willing to stand by, by anyone else who purports to be advancing my political interests tries to cross either.
3: I want to ask you a question, if I can, real quickly about the uh, the military and um, the military's, uh, the involvement of members of the military past and present in the January 6th insurrection. There was a pretty disturbing portion of them who were active or previous members of the army or the armed forces. And just earlier this week, three former army generals warned about their concerns about the increasing politicization of the armed services. Do you think that the U.S. military has a white supremacy problem?
2: So I think that the United States military and the veteran population has an extremism problem of which it is most definitively addressing. And, you know, the United States military has been at the forefront of addressing societal issues that America has been facing for Decades upon decades. And I think it's disgusting to watch these members of Congress when they have just a few minutes to question leading military officials to try to purport that somehow they're engaging in woke leftist politics when the truth of the matter is, is that if you want to build out a resilient war fighting machine, which is ultimately the purpose of the United States military unit cohesiveness and solidarity is so vitally important. But I think that one thing that's been left out of this conversation is the ways, and this was an issue that I really focused on in Congress, these extremist organizations throughout the United States of America are actively recruiting veterans informally as well as formally because they're ideal candidates for persuasion with previous military training and so on and so forth. So many of these militias are also doing it. I think it's highly disappointing that while the Department of Defense has been doing quite a lot about extremism, I've been actually very disappointed in what the Biden that the Biden administration has not taken certain steps in the face of rising domestic extremism in the United States, most specifically putting global organizations, extremist, white supremacist organizations on the foreign terrorist organization list. Trump administration put the Russian imperial movement on the specially designated terrorist group list. The Biden administration has not put one of these organizations on either the FTO list or the SDTG list. Despite the fact that Canada, Australia, Germany, Denmark, the UK, and so many others has listed organizations like Atomwaffen, Krieg, the base, National Action, as the Proud Boys, as terrorist organizations. You know, and and what what their excuse is sometimes for for saying we're not going to do this is they say, oh, there's too many of these individuals in the United States of America. Are you kidding me? That's not a valid response. We cannot address jihadist terrorist organizations in one way, and when someone has white skin, address their, their terrorist threat in a different manner. The administration, I sincerely believe, has got to step up and update these lists.
3: Adding to the administration, let's talk real quickly about the January 6th committee. So far, it's held one hearing. Do you, How do you rate the work of the January 6th committee so far in terms of, uh, of its progress or its efforts to
2: deal well, with? I, I think, and this is someone who, you know, I, trained under Benny under, uh, Thompson, uh, someone I call, I call him the godfather, you know, I think that they have proceeded in a forthright, determined, and judicious manner without a whole assortment of leaks, without chasing Peter, to really get to the bottom of a few things. One, how did that occur on that day? But also, everything that led up to it you know, th- this is a scary movement that's emerging in this country. We've heard people like leaders like Ali Soufan, a shared friend of Issacost and I, that, you know, th- this emergent movement of extremism is reminiscent of what Al-Qaeda and other jihadist terrorist organizations looked like pre-9-11. And for us to have an opportunity for to, for to have a commission to not just look at that day in and of itself and the failures associated but with some of the root causes of that violence and extremism, I think is incredibly important.
0: So just to wrap up here, uh, back to um, petty politics, perhaps. Um, the woman you're running against, Nicole Maliotakis, is a Trump supporter from Staten Island. Staten Island is the core of your district there may be some redistricting which you know you may know something about that makes you a little more optimistic but Staten Island as a whole voted 57% for Trump in 2020 what makes you think you could dislodge a Trump supporter in a district that seems to be quite sympathetic to Donald Trump
2: well you didn't you didn't think that I could win in 2018 either they, I didn't know you
0: then, so I don't know that I had a firm opinion.
2: In the same district, may I add, so redistricting you can have a conversation about that with someone else. That, hey, this is about this district, one that I've already won once before. No one, to include my opponent, will have Trump's coattails to hide behind this time around. But for the next year, what this is going to be about, and it's, it's even less now, It's not about some electoral results. It is genuinely going to be about how do we practice a type of politics that our respective families can be proud of. The type of politics that I think will build rather than tear down, the type of politics that will not be based around lies and vitriol and kicking the can down the road, but in and around productive solutions for the future. That's what this is about, man. And I have nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. We're going to act like it. And that's a, that's a campaign that I think is not just going to be a winning campaign, yes, but it's going to be something that's going to be really beautiful.
0: All right. Well, we wish you luck either way. Uh, you are always welcome on Skullduggery. And I look forward to you paying up your bet. Um, and we'll find a new one that pictures, you might Mike, have we a, demand a, pictures. A, a somewhat better chance of prevailing. Yeah, he but he anyway. I
2: really know that when he shows up at the Capitol Grill, he's not going to order modestly.
0: <laughs> no, no no. I will get I want, my uh, I want pictures of the I will get the, my uh, money's culinary
3: worth. carnage. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Anyway. Okay, thanks a lot. Great great chat.